Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ordonez. The free market works well in many different sectors, but childcare is not one of them. It does not work for the caregivers, it does not work for the parents, it does not work for the kids, and because it does not work for them, it does not work for the country. That was U.S. Treasury Secretary and former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, speaking back in September. Today, on Policy for the People, we will examine Oregon's child care crisis, the challenges it poses for families, child care workers, and for the economy. And we will discuss the kinds of policy changes that can set things right. We're going to start by considering the situation facing Jessica Boyd of Eugene, Oregon. Jessica testified at a recent hearing held by the Oregon legislature, and in many ways, her story encapsulates the child care crisis. Jessica is the mother of two children and is also a child care worker with a degree in early childhood education. She spoke of how, at times during her career as a child care worker, half of her income would go to paying for child care for her children at the very same place where she worked. She also talked about the current challenges that child care centers are having in retaining staff. This is some of what she told lawmakers. In the last two years, it has been much harder to find staff that will stay. It feels like a revolving door. We're decreasing our center capacity in order to fit the current staff shortage. It has been very hard to hire anyone, and families are losing access to child care as a result. It's not hard to understand why it's difficult to find staff to hire. If it wasn't for my husband, I wouldn't be able to get by on a child care provider's wage. I could not be self-sufficient on my own income. I am now joined by two of Oregon's leading thinkers on the issue of child care policy. Andrea Paluzzo is executive director of Family Forward Oregon, an organization that builds grassroots political power with mothers and caregivers to fight for racial, gender, and economic justice. I'm also pleased to welcome Mary King, economics professor emeritus at Portland State University and the author of the recent column, Affordable Child Care Would Boost Oregon's Economy. I should also point out that Mary serves on the board of directors of the Oregon Center for Public Policy. Let's start by defining terms. Andrea, what does the term child care encompass? Is it limited to children of a particular age group? And what kind of care arrangements exist? When we think of child care uh, organizationally, we think about really care across this, the spectrum of childhood and beyond for some children. So really comprehensive universal programs for kids zero to 13 at least. You know, for us, that can look like a, a variety of programs under one umbrella. <laughs> I feel strongly that what you know, parents of newborns need is access to paid family and medical leave. And that is also a childcare program. It, it does other things too, but it's also part of a childcare system. And we need really amazing care for infants and toddlers and preschool age kids that add preschool programs and kids in K-12 who need summer and aftercare arrangements. And then again, um, care for kids who are going to need, you know, access, support and childcare beyond, beyond 13. Um, and that looks like care in a variety of settings too. So you know, the term that, that we use is a mixed delivery system, but a system where, you know, you can really support parent choice. And that could mean 
care in a more formal center-based facility or care in a child care provider's home or care from a family member. So it's no secret that child care is expensive. Can you give us a sense of just how expensive child care is here in Oregon? Yeah, it ranges a little bit by where you live and by the age of your child, but um, some of the most expensive care kind of averaged across Oregon is care for infants because a provider can only care for so many babies. You know, you can care for a few more preschool age kids or school age kids at the same time, but the, you know, the cost of caring for an infant is usually the highest. The average cost in Oregon, I think most recently is just over $13,000 a year for infant full-time infant care. That's obviously really out of reach for a lot of families. It costs more than it might cost to send a college-age student to in-state college. It costs more than a lot of people's rent or mortgage payments. It is just beyond what most families can really afford, which means that families are having to make a lot of choices about not working or foregoing the kind of care that they really need. Yeah, and this really gets to the next question that I have, which is, why is childcare so expensive? So you already alluded to a little bit of that, but can you can you flesh that out? Like, what, what are the main drivers of, of cost here? Yeah, I mean, it's a labor-intensive job. <laughs> Anyone who has children knows how hard it is to care for just one child at a time, much less groups of children at a time. And you just need to have adequate staff to really provide good quality care for children. And, you know, there are other costs related to facilities and supplies and other things, you know, but a a big driver of it is just making sure that you have enough qualified adults. Miriam, I'm wondering if you'd like to add anything to this question of what makes childcare so expensive. I'd like to say that childcare is really only expensive compared to family budgets. So the true cost of care of childcare is often defined as high quality, developmentally appropriate, safe and reliable childcare staffed by a professionally compensated workforce. And I would add a few things to that, that you know it needs to be available in multiple languages, different cultural approaches, sizes of settings, and it really needs to be on schedules that families need. Right now, childcare is subsidized not only by the people providing the care, but by the real estate, it's jammed even head start into church basements and other uh, real estate with costs far below the market and not purpose built for as it should be for our children. The other thing I wanted to point out is it's also not expensive when we compare it to the economic return on investment in high quality public care programs. It returns a range of seven to $13 to the economy for every dollar that we spend. Some goes to the kids who are going to earn more later and have better life outcomes. Some goes to the parents who will work more hours, get more training and education. Some is shows up in the form of savings on special education, public benefits and criminal justice involvement. And some accrues to governments in the form of higher tax revenues We're taking this short break to invite you to subscribe to our show for free. Follow us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Now, back to the show. So in listening to a 
legislative hearing on childcare in early February, one of the issues that really stood out is the matter of access to childcare. And it seems that access to childcare is a big problem as well. And Andrea, I'm wondering, are there too few childcare providers relative to the need? Yes, absolutely. I'm, unfortunately, there's a level of scarcity in every part of this uh, system, of this sector. So we have too few providers for the number of families who need care. We have too few different kinds of providers for families who need multiple types of care at once or um, very specific care based on their work schedules or um, cultural preferences or language needs or needs for children with disabilities. Like in all of those ways, we have not enough providers, not enough care, too few facilities. Do you know if the uh, problem is more severe in certain parts of the states? I'm wondering if access to childcare is especially problematic in, say, rural areas in Oregon. Yeah, that's notably one of the places where it's it's often worse. I mean, every county in Oregon is a childcare desert for some age group of children, um, which means that there are fewer slots available for childcare than there are kids who who need it. And there are extreme deserts in some rural areas and other areas. And, you know, that's really just cataloging what's available for how many kids there are, but not what's available based on what parents need and want. One of the obvious questions here is because we're living in a time of a pandemic, and I'm wondering how the pandemic has affected access to childcare and perhaps the cost of childcare as well. It's affected it. I mean, we were in a childcare crisis before this pandemic. Just want to make sure folks folks know that, but it's gotten worse. Um, we have obviously seen a higher level of health and safety standards in childcare facilities appropriately to deal with the pandemic, facilities that are, are able to you know, serve fewer, fewer kids during this pandemic. A lot of childcare providers who have needed to, you know, not st- step away from working in childcare for a period of time to because of their own health issues or the health issues of a family member. There's there's been a variety of different challenges that the childcare sector has faced um, during this pandemic, increased costs, increased health and safety and cleaning requirements and things like that. So it has reduced our overall availability of childcare in Oregon beyond even our pre-pandemic crisis levels. Mary, anything you want to add on this point? We're finding throughout the economy that people are not necessarily returning to jobs that are less, you know, that pay as little as childcare. And it's a tremendous strain right now in the childcare system. I also wanted to add something to Andrea's point about the lack of availability of childcare. And that is we often focus on the pipeline, the number of people coming into the profession, which is an important consideration But we have to also take note that there are very high turnover rates. People leave the profession, even who love it and who have really invested in their own skills. So for instance, among women who have a college degree in early childhood education or development in the metro area around Portland, six of seven of them who are working do not work with young children. They have left the field. They can't support their families and they 
they have to find another kind of job. There's not, I think we're going to see a big difference in supply of people who want to get the kind of training and work in this field if there is a viable career there. And that really means raising wages. So let's turn to the question of wages for childcare workers. What can you tell us about the wages of these workers? They're very low. They average just among above minimum wage. And that's, you have to remember an average of the people who have more skill and experience. Essentially, uh, a great number of childcare workers are impoverished if they aren't in a family with members who are bringing in higher incomes. They are nearly half of them in households that receive food stamps. They're in the lowest 2% of occupations in the country. The lowest 2% of paid workers in the country? Yes. Wow. And I think some of the, the context um, about who this workforce is, is is important. You know, this is a workforce of child care providers that is the vast majority, almost entirely women. <laughs> um, it is disproportionately women of color and immigrant women. Underinvestment in childcare has to do with who these workers are and a level of institutional racism and sexism that's really embedded in how these systems were built and the ways in which as a public, we've looked the other way on the low wages, on the exploitation of the labor of the women who are providing childcare. This gets really to a, to a big question of how we got here. And it seems that this issue of racism and sexism is definitely at the core of the answer, or is there more than that? That's a huge part of how, how we are where we are. I mean, we have as a country not prioritized the development of a universal child care system um, at various points in our country's history, folks have tried and those efforts have largely been prevented from being successful by very powerful interests because there's still a level of ambivalence if, at best um, around women's economic independence and having access to childcare is so clearly linked to mothers being able to stay in the workforce and a level of clear institutional racism. You know, it is true that it's largely been women of color caring for white women's children since the times of, of slavery in this country and Jim Crow. And, you know, there is a reason historically that our care workforces are disproportionately women of color and underpaid. Most of our childcare in the country and in Oregon too, is private pay. It's families paying on their own. Very little of the care that we, we have is subsidized publicly, but the subsidy systems that we do have, really the ones we have now largely grew out of welfare reform efforts um, in the 90s that were very racialized and where the goal was really to prevent to set lifetime limits on welfare and to prevent mothers with children largely from being able to get the kinds of public assistance that they needed to make ends meet. And in order to do that, they kind of, I think, felt like they needed to have a nod toward the need that, you know, working people have for childcare. And so created a subsidy system that was entirely tied to the hours that you work, 
um, you know, not the care that you need, but the care that you can get for the hours that you're working and having to prove over and over again, how much you need it and how little you're earning and what hours you're working. And it's just, it's very cumbersome. It is not about the outcomes that we should be striving for. It's not about what kids need and the level of stable, safe care that kids need to thrive and, or what parents need to be able to live full lives and participate in both economic and civic life fully. It's not about what providers need. Mary, is there anything you would like to add on this point of, of kind of how we got here to this very dysfunctional system? Yes, I think Andrea is right on those points. And I would just add two things. One, that we now have a culture that very much sees having children, child raising as an individual sort of a project rather than something that's utterly crucial to the society. And if you just want to think in terms of cold, hard economics, we are creating the next generation of workers. It's not sort of a hobby to have children. It's utterly essential for the future. The other failure, I think, of recognition is that we fail to recognize that childcare is what economists call a public good. It will not be provided effectively by the market. A public good are things like streetlights and K through 12 education. It's a mistake that we've tied childcare to the market. And it's a mistake that's cost us a lot over the decades in terms of child poverty, in terms of economic inequality, especially disparities by gender, race, and class, and really most tragically by wasted human potential because we don't take care of our kids the way that we should. And it seems that there are countries out there that have figured it out, that have recognized it as a public good. People instantly think of Scandinavia as the model, but they are hardly alone in providing far more for children than we do. The whole world recognizes that investing in children is critical. And the US, along with being one of the very few nations that doesn't provide, I think actually perhaps we're one of three that doesn't provide paid family leave when children are young, that we also don't provide universal childcare. So let's focus now on the way forward uh, about what needs to happen so that all Oregonians have access to quality, affordable childcare, and for all childcare professionals to live with dignity and enjoy economic security. Recently, we saw the Build Back Better legislation being proposed in Congress. Uh, that legislation has stalled. But one of the really critical components of Build Back Better was to make really unprecedented investments in childcare. And, you know, it's still to be determined the fate of that legislation. There's talk about some of those parts moving separately or perhaps uh, some new version of the package. But Mary, I'm wondering if you can give us a quick summary of what that legislation would do in terms of childcare, the kind of thinking that is now going on in Congress. Well, as you say, Juan Carlos, it's difficult to tell as negotiations continue but President Biden's campaign material called for high quality, culturally inclusive, universal preschool for all three and four-year-olds for no more than 7% of a family's income with family choices of setting and care also provided during non-traditional hours. I think there are some concerns to watch out for as negotiations continue, things we'll want to have to keep thinking about 
7% of income is too much for many families. It would be better if it were free for everyone because means testing is expensive and lowers the political support of any program. Second, President Biden has said that the federal minimum wage should be $15 an hour. And he's also said that the wage floor for universal preschool should be $15 an hour. But childcare is not minimum wage work. It's skilled and challenging. And I challenge anyone who thinks it isn't to do it. They will quickly learn. The third concern for the I have for the federal bill in flux is that it not negotiate away availability of a range of schedules and adequate hours. We need to make sure that it is the program that we want. And that means, lastly, that it can't be designed like our current federal programs, which are severely underfunded, badly compensated, and inappropriately tied to market rates. But that said, we really need to get started now. We can't wait for a perfect proposal. Yeah, I agree. I think um, there's some things that I would I would change about the the proposal for pre-K and child care and build back better. But overall, it's a it's also represents a really huge step forward. And one of the big steps is um, we currently fund our child care programs at the state level mostly through a federal block grant that is insufficient. And this proposal is moving that funding structure to a federal entitlement funding structure. So it presumes that all eligible families, like the cost of covering all eligible families is covered primarily by federal money. And the state will have an assumed match as part of that and can invest more to grow the program beyond its current, you know, its baseline, but that the federal government is finally investing in our childcare infrastructure and childcare systems, our providers, our parents at the level that we need for it too, um, because many of our states are gonna have a hard time affording the level of, of system that we need on our own. So as Mary said, it's got that presumption for universal pre-K and then a subsidized childcare system. Unfortunately, it's only for children zero to five currently, but it allows for states to move money they already spend on zero to five services to cover other age groups. And it does start to get us to calculating what the federal government is paying for childcare. So it's directly, you know, paying more providers for the cost for the slot and the cost that they're presuming is at the cost of quality, not the market rates that Mary referred to that are very problematic and not encompassing what it actually costs to provide um, quality childcare. It is kind of moving us in the direction of an acknowledgement that the federal government with a state match has a role in building a system. Unfortunately, it's not contemplating a fully universal system. Um, and I think it, it we should go in that direction for sure, but it is making a big dent. I mean, if, if, if it stayed the same, and of course, as, as Mary noted, it's in flux and we'll see where, where things end up. But um, the proposition was to subsidize childcare for families earning under 250% of the state median income for a family of their size, which starts to get us into the terrain of having there be a public subsidy for the vast majority of families in our state. So a step forward, but either way, there's a role for the state to play when it comes to making childcare affordable. And right now there's a legislative session taking place and there are several bills that address child care policy. And I'm wondering, Andrea, if you can sum up for us what those proposals would do. 
we're going to need to to step back for a minute. This sector, this system is in such dire need from generations of underinvestment that we're we're going to need to be thinking about solutions and investing in childcare at a much larger scale than we have historically for a long time. Some of the steps that that we're asking the legislature to make this year are particular to some of the circumstances that we're seeing arise around COVID. So we did pass uh, in the last long legislative session, a new, a bill that creates a new agency within state government, the Department of Early Learning and Care to bring more of our childcare and early learning programs under one umbrella. So the continued implementation and support for that so that we can make a system that parents and providers can navigate more easily because they're often accessing resources from multiple programs in a way that's pretty challenging to do currently. Also, um, you know, in some of our federal COVID aid, there were uh, grants that went to providers who have remained open during COVID to help them recover some of their costs, their additional costs during this time. And we're asking for the legislature to invest in an expanded grant program to help more providers, new providers come online who are facing some of the cost barriers to starting a new childcare business and or providers who are wanting to expand the services that they provide. We're also asking for the legislature to invest in some essential worker payments for childcare workers to add um, some money to their pockets over the next couple of years. And then we're also recalibrating the current rates that providers are being paid through subsidy to, to just increase the amount that the state is paying for the slots that they're providing, um, which allows for providers to earn more for the the families that they're serving, but also allows for the parents who qualify for subsidy to afford more care within the market. All of this is really important. They're really critical steps forward, but they're certainly not enough. I mean, we absolutely need to be thinking more systemically and longer term about levels of funding more like those contemplated in Build Back Better to really move toward the system that we need. So looking long-term beyond this session, it seems that finding those resources are really at the core. Is, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to find more revenue to invest in childcare. Before we wrap up, let me ask you if there's anything we didn't cover that you would like to bring up regarding our childcare crisis. And Mary, maybe you can go first. I did want to go back a little bit to the impact on the ability of mothers, especially to participate in the labor force. Our labor force participation rate is well below many other nations, and it's tied to our child lack of a child care system and lack of paid parental leave nationally. And it means that uh, especially mothers are losing wages in the moment, and they will have lower wages in the future and a higher probability of poverty in old age. We need to see how this, the role of childcare fits in to the economic trajectory more broadly. And how about you, Andrea? Any final thoughts you want to share regarding childcare? As we've discussed, I mean, there are just so clearly costs to inaction. And that cost is currently disproportionately held by women, by women of color, um, and by our kids. We deserve better and we can do it. (laughs) You know, this is a problem we can solve. Other countries have solved it. This is something that we can do. We know how to do. We know what we need. And, And I guess the last thing I would say is just, this is a symptom of a larger problem around the fact that 
we don't as a country value care work as critical and important work. And I think that this pandemic has really helped for more people to see how critically important and essential care work is. It is the foundation that everything else is built upon. And it's time for us to start recognizing that and investing in that labor in uh, kind of in correlation to its importance to everything else. Thank you, Andrea and Mary. And thank you for listening to Policy for the People. We will see you next time.